You are listening to the Kensington Church Podcast, recorded live in Metro Detroit. To learn more about Kensington, visit kensingtonchurch.org. Welcome to church. Whether you are joining us in person or on the stream, we are so glad you're here with us in the first week of our new series, How to Take a Hit. I'm Shauna, and I've taken one too many hits in 2020. Can anyone relate? But I'm here to tell you that the blows we experience don't have to take us down. Take it from Joseph in the Bible. Talk about a roller coaster of a life. He went from favorite son to slave to ruler to prisoner to hero. More on that to come in this five-week series. Now that Halloween is officially behind us, it's time to ask one of the most frequently asked hard-hitting questions in our culture. Does November 1st officially kick off the Christmas season? If you're watching in person, give us a thumbs up or a thumbs down. And to everyone streaming, fill in the comments with Christmas emojis if you're in favor of Christmas starting now. We know there are a lot of you Christmas early birds out there. You are about to dust off that Christmas tote that's been stored away, put on some Mariah Carey's Christmas classics, and get in the spirit. Now make no apologies. We fully support Christmas early birds here at Kensington, as long as you don't skip over Thanksgiving. For us at Kensington, Thanksgiving marks a yearly tradition of delivering Thanksgiving baskets to families in our school partners' community. It's our 26th year moving out together to provide thousands of Thanksgiving meals. You can donate to fund baskets, which are $50 each, and you can sign up to deliver a basket on Saturday, November 21st. The delivery process will look a little different with COVID-19 protocols, but we still have the opportunity to talk to the families who are receiving this special gift. It's not always about the meal. It's about the conversations and the relationships that happen because of it. You can go to kensingtonchurch.org slash thanksgiving to be a part of this tradition. We are so glad you showed up to church today as we dive into the first week of our new series.
we like to start church off by laughing at other people's pain. There's really two types of people in this room. Those of you that every time somebody got hurt, you were like, oh, and those of you that just laughed. Who laughed? Who's my laughers? All right, good. I like this place even more and more every time. You're like my wife, total laugher. So quick question, what movie made that song popular? Rocky, Rocky what? What? Three. Rocky three. Okay, who sings it? Survivor, you were right, you should have gone with it. You hesitated, Survivor. So glad you guys are with us for the launch of a new series this morning called How to Take a Hit. For the next five weeks, we are gonna journey through one of the stories in the Bible that gets more paper real estate than any other story. There is more detail about this one story than virtually any other as it covers a span of about 20 years of time. It is the story of the man named Joseph. And Joseph's life, in a lot of ways, uh, it was very similar or is very similar to a guy that I met uh, a number of years ago, about four years ago now, a guy named Ken. If you saw the promo video last week and as I was kind of talking about the series, you saw the two guys fighting in the background. Well, one of those was Ken. And on that day, we were able to sit down in the ring afterwards and talk a little bit about fighting but also life because in addition to being a professional fighter, Ken is also a follower of Jesus. And one of the incredible things about Ken's story and we're going to see glimpses of this also in Joseph's story today, is that Ken has gone through a series of hits in his own life that God has used those hits and has turned them into incredible opportunities that he is using Ken for right now in the lives of other people. So for the next couple of minutes, I want to introduce you on screen to my friend Ken and a little bit of his story of how God has led him through hits in life, in his faith, and how he's used them. So here's Ken. So I'm here at Stars and Strikes Gym in Westland where my buddy Ken Wolfmack is gonna teach me how to actually take a hit today. So come on in. I'm about to teach you how to take a hit. That's gonna determine if you're a fighter. <laughs> <laughs> when you get in your stance, your elbows tight, hands up, right? You mm -hmm. always wanna protect your face. So that's all you have to do is keep everything tight, make sure you're covering your face. That's how you do it. So after you throw the punch, you're gonna bring it right back to your face. Okay. And then just make sure you stay protected. You want to hold it tight. So when you get hit, you want to be here. Got it. Okay. Okay. So you ready to take a hit? I'm ready. Okay. So you're not fighting stance. Okay. You here? Ready? Ready. Okay. Hit me. Hey, wake up. Quick. You good? Mm-hmm. Because you didn't do nothing I just told you. So now you've taught me how to take a hit. How about outside of the ring in just life in general? Like, I know from some of our conversations, I mean, life, like with everybody else, life has had moments where it's swung hard on you. And how has some of what you have learned, even here in the ring, about how to take a hit translated into moments in life? I was bullied my whole life. Mm. Went to nine different schools. Um, so being that new kid, wow. I'm sure people know that you get picked on a lot. And that was just through, like, from elementary to high school, nine different schools. Nine different schools. Wow. And uh, it wasn't easy. You know, kids mm. picked on me, so I had to hold my own. Mm. Had about 18 individual fights, jumped twice by 10-plus guys. I was good at it, which how, <laughs> <laughs> which how I kind of transitioned over becoming an athlete, being a basketball mm. player, and saw fighting was a sport. Mm. But... Being bullied, that was another way I took a hit, too. Hmm. So, um, so, so obviously, like you said, you, and those are moments where you learn to pray and, you know, that God was always important in your life. But you know, like I do, like, we can go to church and just kind of go through all the motions. But it's more than that for you. Somewhere along the way, it became something very real. Like, Jesus became something very real for you. W when did that happen and how did that happen? And I was looking for a church and ended up finding a church in Detroit. And uh, since then, that when I first heard the pastor there speak, that truly hit me like, wow, I finally, truly found a good church. And, and you're pretty involved there, too. I am. Um, so now I'm a lead teacher for the elementary school. A lead teacher for the elementary school, which lead is teacher. awesome. Which is because great. you would think, take a guy like you and put him on security. Right. Which I have done security, too. <laughs> <laughs> I have done security, too. Um, that's a funny story, too, with doing the kids now. Um, working with my mentors that got me with this church, mm. uh, I was at their house party, like a Christmas party, I believe, and mm. 
Everybody was just there. We just all having a good time. And kids was there as well. And uh, I just went over and started playing with the kids. And uh, the wife of the mentor saw me. Mm. And literally, I turned around. She handed me the envelope. Like, you need to sign this right now. <laughs> <laughs> she put you right in charge. She, she gave you a job right away. Uh, literally. Like, literally, was like, you need to sign this right now. Like, what is it? <laughs> uh, it told me that I'd be a good fit for the mm. kids' ministry. And uh, sure enough, I started off, you know, mm. shouting at some other leaders there and ended up being the lead teacher. So I, I'd love you just to walk us through for a minute what it actually is like to get hit, like in the ring. So forget outside the ring for a minute, inside the ring. What's it like to take a hit, be on the ground? Like walk, walk me through that whole experience. So taking a hit in the cage is one a lifetime experience. You know, yeah. since I've gotten hit, my mind just changed, like, all right, well, I need to figure out a new game plan because I don't want to get hit like that again. <laughs> um, but it's the mindset, too, of can I take it? Mm. You know, if I can't take a hit, I should not be in this ring. Mm. And by taking these hard hits, I realized that, okay, I can take it. Um, yes, it's painful. Even if I get down, knock out on the ground, take it down, start working, say some jujitsu, or I'm in a bad position, you know, I'm always trying to stay calm and relax and know that there's a way to get out, to get back up and mm. keep fighting. Awesome. So I got to ask a question. I want to know my audience a little bit better this morning. Keep getting to know Orion a little bit better. Show of hands, how many of y'all have ever been punched in the face? All right. Quite a few of you, mostly guys, very few of you girls. There's a couple, though. would love to hear that story. So how, how many of you have been punched in the face by the person sitting next to you? No, don't answer that. That's, uh, that's going to lead to even more fights. So much about Ken's story that I love, and just even different times I've been able to talk to him over the years. I think four years ago we met, bits and pieces that I've heard, some that didn't even make it into the video and some that did. But I, I'll just tell you one of the coolest things about his story is seeing how You've got this kid who nine different moves, nine different schools, as a result of it, is bullied, has to learn how to fight, finds out, hey, I'm actually kind of good at fighting, becomes his profession, and then here's what's incredible. God takes it to more than just a profession, but turns it into a platform. Because not only is Ken working in uh, the kids' ministry at his church, like, and how cool would that be, too? Like, what if that was your, your teacher in your elementary? Like, those kids are listening, I guarantee and then not only is he serving in his church, but here's what's really cool. He has also been, uh, had an opportunity to start being invited into schools and speaking into the lives of kids where he's coaching them, mentoring them, and just beginning to invest back into some of them who were in very similar places in life that he ultimately was at one point as well. And, and here's what's so cool is that God took what was really his early pain and transformed it into his present platform that it wasn't lost, it wasn't just regret, it wasn't just too bad that happened, is that God met him in that place, led him through it, and has turned it now into the opportunity that God himself is working through him to the benefit of other people. Like, what an incredible thing. That is the story of Joseph that we're gonna look at over the next couple of weeks. As Joseph enters the pages of the Bible, if you're familiar with the story, then you know this, he enters in in the first book. So he's very early on. Chapter 37 of the book of Genesis, Joseph shows up. He's 17 years old when he first appears into the story of the Bible. And almost from day one, and you'll see this in a few minutes, Joseph has this chaotic family that invites all kinds of hits into his life. Those hits end up turning into hit after hit after hit after hit and literally becomes two decades. It's not until he's about 37 years old that things start to loosen up and lighten up on him, and he begins to see really what I think Ken's story exemplifies, which is God's sovereign nature that enters into our stories and turns our pain oftentimes into a platform, and we see that every bit as much in Joseph's story. A couple years ago, when I really started to get the idea for this series, I was telling somebody recently, I'm like, I think this series has actually been like four years in the making, and they're like, no, dude, this has been like thousands of years in the making. This is Joseph's story. I'm like, oh, true. But for me, it's been like four years since I really started putting together the pieces of Joseph's story and meeting Ken. And it was right around the same time I remember reading an article in the paper. It was titled, Florida's Economy is Poised to Take a Major Hit from Hurricane Irma. I don't know if you guys remember that, that hurricane hit, and it did. It was a hit. It was devastating. 
But I remember thinking then, and I think you could say the truth is also now, is that you could run that article for so many things that our world is going through. Since then, till now, and especially in this last year. Like, our world has been undergoing a series of hits. You would literally have to have been sleeping this last year to disagree. Hits to our economy, hits through COVID, hits through racism and social unrest. I mean, we have just been hit left and right. Probably one of the most, if not for most of us, the most politically divided uh, election that we've ever seen. Like our world has just been taking an unbelievable amount of hits. And then if you rein it back in from just the world to our own personal lives, I would venture to believe that many of us sitting in here listening online would say that's true about our own personal lives. Many of us are taking hits in our marriage. You're taking hits with your family. You're taking hits economically. You're taking hits in your career. Some of you are taking hits physically. I've only been here at Orion now seven weeks, and in the amount of seven weeks, the stories that I have heard of things that so many of us are going through are heartbreaking. Those are hits, and we all know what they feel like, and that's one of the things about being hit in life is that hits are indiscriminate. They don't pick and choose. They hit us all, regardless of gender or color or background or status. They just come, and sometimes They're out of nowhere. Sometimes we see them coming, but the bottom line is we all go through them. And sometimes when we watch people go through hits, or maybe you would even identify this for yourself, sometimes they have the ability to just knock people out. Like if you've seen the person that gets hit by something that maybe even in your opinion you go, that wasn't even that bad, and yet it just levels them. And it's like they're done. But then there's other people that seem to go through thing after thing after thing, and they should have been leveled with the first punch, and instead, not only do they make it through, they somehow become transformed through it all. They don't just survive it, they thrive through it. That is Joseph's story. That is what happened to him after 20 years of relentless hits. He doesn't just make it through. Like, this series isn't just how to get by. This series is based off of a guy whose life did far more than just get by, but he literally thrived at the end of it, and God turned that pain into a platform, and what we'll see throughout the end of the series is that he literally used his life to the saving of thousands of other lives. One of the things that we see at about age 37, uh, Joseph, this is recorded in chapter 50 of his story, finds himself literally face-to-face with some of the people that delivered some of the worst punch and blow to his face. And as he stares at them face to face, he says something to them that will be for us kind of a thread throughout this entire series that we're going to pull on. Because it really is the foundation that I believe gave him the hope and the confidence and the ability that no matter what hit him, is that he was going to get through it. Here it is on your screen. Chapter 50 of Genesis. As Joseph looks at some of the people that hit him the hardest, he says, you intended harm to me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. By the time we're done with the series, we're going to fully understand exactly what he means when he says the saving of many lives. But this morning, as we started off, that is our foundation, is what Joseph came to learn throughout the course of his life, that there was something to believe in that was even stronger than anything that ever hit him. And it is the sovereignty of God that takes even the worst of moments and transforms them into something good, not only to our benefit, but often to that of others as well. So before we dive in, I want to ask that God, who I believe not just authored this series, but this book that we get it from, is present with us this morning, would just speak to us and give us the ability to hear from him. So let me pray. Father in heaven, kneel before you, who I believe is the king of all things, the Lord of all creation. And all week long, I have been very wrapped up in the promise that you give us in the book of Hebrews, that you are bringing to us a kingdom that does not shake. Because right now, I feel like our world is in a shaky place. Some of it because of what will culminate into the election on Tuesday. And some of it for so many other things going on around us. And yet there is this promise that we have from you that you are the Lord over all creation. And you rule the kingdom that does not shake. And so that I pray, Father, that we as followers of yours, we would be men and women who do not shake who have a steadfast confidence within us that no matter what is going on in our life, no matter what is going on in our world, even no matter what happens come this next Tuesday, that you are on your throne, 
You are good, you are sovereign, you are in control. You are the unshakable king of all things whose kingdom does not shake either. And I pray this morning as we read this story of a 17-year-old boy who learned how to walk with you, trust in you, who learned how to hand his life over to you at the most painful moments and believe that you were doing something even when he couldn't see it, I pray that we would learn from that. I pray, God, that you would meet us wherever we're at this morning, whether this morning we feel like we're in a season of being pummeled or we're in a good season and we feel like maybe for some of us life is peace right now. I pray that wherever we're at, that you would meet us in that place, give us the ability in our heads, in our hearts to hear you and to receive from you what it is you have for us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, before we go any further, one of the things I want to do is part of what it means for us to be a a community of faith, to be a church. Uh, One of the things that we do together, that we believe together, is when we give together. We do it together because something we believe together is the mission that God gave us in this book to go into all the world with the message of Jesus, his hope, his life, his love, his death, his resurrection, and his coming return. And we are doing that. We are doing it locally. We are doing it globally. And in many ways, because of the pandemic, we are doubling down some of our efforts in some of the places that are hardest hit and hurting. And all of that happens because of you. You that are in this room, you that are watching online, your generosity, your support. That's why these moments, I say this all the time, and I'll never stop saying it, is not about money, it's about mission. It's not about giving, it is about purpose. So I just wanna, I never wanna miss the opportunity to say thank you Uh, for all that you do to give, whether it's your first time or whether you've been doing it faithfully for a long time. If you are joining us physically again for one of the first times, then this is a little new because we're not passing anything. Uh, Some of you are like, where's the thing? Doesn't usually get passed around. There's obvious reasons we're not passing it right now. Uh, But you can still give online, whether on our app or texting in or even going to the website. And for those of you that like to drop something in a bucket, we have those in the back before you leave today by the doors. You can do that as well. So again, thank you so much. This really is a moment for us that is about mission and you're making it happen, so we appreciate you for that. So when I met Ken a couple years ago, I remember asking him at one point uh, after seeing some stuff online and watching him fight a little bit, like this guy, he punches like a freight train. Like I remember watching him hit and I'm like, man, those guys swing hard. And so I remember asking the first time I met him, I'm like, all right, so what's the best way to survive a hit? And I'll never forget his answer, it's priceless. He looks at me, he's like, don't get hit. He's like, oh, that's, that's brilliant. Now, here's the thing, though. As a fighter, there are rare times where either because of skill or luck or maybe some combination of the two, you can step into the ring and the bell goes off, you swing, you connect, they go down, done, and you never took a hit. I don't think life delivers us that luxury, though. I think no matter who you are, no matter what your life consists of, if you're not presently in a moment where you would describe it as I'm getting hit somehow right now, then one's coming. And if one isn't quickly coming, maybe you just walked out of, as a matter of fact, I didn't do this first service. I'd love to do this here. If you just be brave enough to to expose yourself a little bit with me for a minute. If you would say, I'm presently in a moment where I feel like I'm taking a hit. It, It doesn't matter how soft it is, how hard it is. If you would say, there's something right now that, yeah, feels like I got a little bit of a sucker punch to the jaw. How many in the room with me today? It's a fair amount of us. And to those of you that aren't, I would bet that you've been through one at some point this year. And if you haven't, I would bet there's one coming. Life just hits. And one of the concerns that I have about that, because our world, I feel like, is increasingly becoming hostile in so many ways. And so one of the heartbeats for me behind this series is not just to deal with how do we take a hit for the sake of how to take a hit, but it has to do with something else that I think is also happening in our culture that is different, quite frankly, than previous generations of ours. And it's simply this. Our current culture and generation is decreasing in its ability to withstand the hits that life throws at us. Sometimes, and and this isn't a magical answer to how you get through things. The truth is, sometimes you've just got to barrel through, grit your teeth, and have that internal, "Mm, I'm not going to let this one take me down. And yet that's one of the very things that I see being stripped away from our culture is that we as a culture are becoming more and more susceptible to being knocked out by the hits that life throws at us. It's like we are, we are losing our internal strength. 
We are losing that sense of grit that just gives us at times that extra measure of ability to press through when life presses against. And a lot of people that study culture and study the kind of evolution and involvement of culture and cultural trends will tell you, and this is no surprise to you, you would say the same probably, that one of the best ways to kind of understand and predict where a culture is moving, how it is shifting and changing, is to look at some of the younger generations among us. Like, what are the trends of the younger generations? What, are the, what is the ethos, the attitude, the display of them? Because the younger generations, as they develop, they are creating the trends and the patterns, not just for the future, but oftentimes it influences all of us in the present. So four years ago, Time Magazine wrote an article that was a bit of a cultural analysis on some of the younger generations. And I think, in all honesty, even though it's four years old, this might be more of a cultural analysis now than it's ever been. They write this article, here's a picture of it on the screen if you want to look it up later, Teen Depression and Anxiety, Why the Kids Are Not All Right. What I found very interesting about this article is it's not merely a reflection of what's going on in some of our younger generations, but how that is a predictor of what's happening larger in our culture right now. So here's some of what they point out. It's a large article, very long, but there's a couple of things that they do mention in here that I want to highlight. They start off by saying this. Adolescents today have a reputation for being far more fragile, less resilient, and more overwhelmed than their parents were when they were growing up. Sometimes they're called spoiled or coddled or helicoptered. But a closer look paints a far more heartbreaking portrait of why young people are suffering. Anxiety and depression in high school students has been on the rise since 2012. And after several years of stability, it's a phenomenon that cuts across all demographics, suburban, urban, and rural. They are the post-9-11 generation. They are raised in an era of economic and national insecurity. They've never known a time when terrorism or school shootings weren't the norm. They grew up watching their parents weather a severe recession, and perhaps most important, they hit puberty at a time when technology and social media were transforming society. Now, this is interesting. If you wanted to create an environment to churn out really angsty people, we've done it. That's what she concludes in the article. We've done it. Throughout the the rest of the pages of this article, author goes on to express a lot of different ways that there is this obvious reality that younger generations are having an increasingly difficult time withstanding the hits of life. For example, she talks about the fact that as a result of four years ago and the election and the way that so many of our college students particularly found the pain of that at a personal level, even at Ivy League schools, we were canceling exams, bringing in therapy dogs, uh, people were dropping out of school. She mentions the high rate of depression and anxiety meds that are particularly among this generation of people that is unlike a lot of previous generations of that age. Uh, Even the fact that 15 to 34-year-olds, the number two cause of death is suicide. Number two. Which means there's an entire generation of people that are struggling so much to withstand what life is throwing at them that they're taking their own lives as a result and tapping out. One of the more fascinating things, and I think the thing that really needs us to lean into this morning, is that deeper into the article, as you read, one of the things she points out is that this is not just an issue with younger generations, but that we're beginning to see more and more prevalent that parents are mimicking the behaviors of their teens when it comes to their inability to withstand the difficulty of life. And you begin to realize, and I don't think it takes much more than just a cursory look around our world right now, maybe even some of our own lives, that we begin to see that this is the reality. That we are having a harder and harder time in our culture withstanding what life throws at us. And it's literally becoming lethal. It affects us relationally. It's killing some of our relationships. It's killing some of us socially, emotionally, mentally. Some of us physically. And some of us spiritually. I think probably one of the worst things is that we begin to understand the spiritual implications of this is that it's leading many of us to conclude all the wrong things about God's nature, his sovereign nature, his control nature, that he is over all things. It's leading many of us to conclude all the wrong things about what it means that he is good and that he has plans even in the worst of situations. And so the question is, all right, then how did a 17-year-old boy do different thousands of years ago undergoing all that he did? 
And maybe you're familiar with Joseph's story, but maybe you're not. And throughout the course of the series, we're going to look at a couple of very key moments of his life where you're going to see some of the hits that he took. But they were horrible. And some of those hits came from family and places that should have been the safest people in his life. Ended up becoming some of the most vile and hurtful. Some of those hits came in legal accusations that were unfounded, but put him in prison. Some of them came from friends that he should have trusted and betrayed him. I mean, he took some of the most vile and, and potentially take you out of the game hits that somebody can take. 17, I have a 17-year-old. It makes me lean in all the more going, all right, how did a 17-year-old kid overcome all of that? He didn't just survive it. He literally thrived through it. So what I want to do for a few minutes with you is I want to look at the start of his story. Because for the rest of the weeks, we're going to look at several things that Joseph did. Today is going to be different. Today we're going to look at something that, frankly, he should have done, that if he would have done, I think would have changed his entire story and would have alleviated nearly all, if not all, of the hits that we'll read about throughout the series that he took. So if you have a Bible, Genesis chapter 37 is where we're going to go. If you don't have one of these, we do put them up on screen so you can follow along. If you're online or if you're here, I would just keep reminding you, though, if you have one, bring it with you. There's nothing like the paper being able to be turned holding it in your hand, finding the passage. One of the best things that I have done throughout the course of my life is be committed to this even when I don't understand it and staying in it and letting God begin to work it out. And one of the best ways I've done that is getting it in my hands, just keep encouraging you to do that. So Genesis chapter 37, this is what we read. Jacob lived in a land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. Jacob is Joseph's father. And this is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilphah, his father's wives. Watch this. And he brought to their father a bad report about them. What do we call that? Tattletale. Right. Yeah. Or where I grew up, we called it a snitch. And we used to say snitches get... Somebody said a punch in the face. Probably get that too. Snitches get stitches. Yeah, this is Joseph. Like, this is fascinating because we're only right into the story. We're a few verses in, and we already see that there's an unhealthy dynamic that is not going to lead to a good outcome. Joseph is the youngest of his brothers up to this point. There is another one who's born later on younger than him. But right now, he's got older brothers. He's the tattletale of the older brothers. I have seven in my family. I'm the oldest. I absolutely know what it's like with two younger brothers to have a tattletale younger brother. This is Joseph. And not only is Joseph a tattletale doing himself no good with his brothers, he's got a dad that isn't helping out the family dynamic at all. This is what we read next. Verse 3, now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. Okay, way to go, Dad. Because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made him an ornate robe. When his brothers saw that his father loved him more than any of them, they hated him, and they could not speak a kind word to him. Now, a lot of times we have understood that his coat was a coat of many what? We actually don't know that for sure. Maybe it was. What we do know is it was ornate. And we know from the Greek language, the Hebrew language rather, that describes this, we know that it means it was a coat that went to his, why do I keep forgetting this word? Wrist. wrist. Man, I'm a pastor, not a doctor. Went to his wrist and his ankles. And so we know that this is a coat of, of prestige. It's a coat of position. It's a coat of uh, I love him more than I love you. This is not a coat you wear out into the field to work uh, as a shepherd like his brothers do. It's a coat of privilege that gives you the opportunity not to go do the hard labor. Your brothers do the hard labor. So regardless of whatever color it was, we do know that based on the coat, the way it's described, the language it's used, this was a coat that was more than a coat. This was a coat that said, he is special and more special than you are. And, and here's what's interesting. Joseph could have downplayed things at this point. Like this is a moment where you, you've got this developing dynamic in the family with a dad that spoils, the youngest son. The youngest son is a bit of a brat and a tattletale. But he could start to withdraw at this point. Like he could kind of downplay things. He could go to his brothers and be like, hey, listen, listen. I don't know what dad's thinking with this coat thing. It's kind of weird. It's setting us at odds. Listen, I'll wear it on Sunday. Uh, you can have it on Friday, you can have it on Wednesday, you can have it on... Th like, he could have downplayed the whole moment, but instead of downplaying it, he doubles down. So this is what he does next. Verse five. So Joseph had a dream, 
And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. I don't know how you keep hating, but these guys are hating upon hating upon hating. Verse 6, he said to them, here's my dream. Listen, you were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because his dream and what he has said. So this, again, this should have been a moment where he goes, huh, that didn't go how I thought. I, I, did, I thought they'd all be like, wow, that's a really cool dream. And, and again, instead of being, you know, a little bit sharp and going, yeah, that was a bad idea. I probably shouldn't have done that. He steps right back into the same situation because he has another dream. And this is what it says. Then he had another dream and he told this to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. Verse 10, when his father as well heard this and his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept this matter in mind. And so you, you have this dynamic in the family of this clearly brewing chaos. Like, this is a pretty unhealthy family. Dad spoils the youngest son. The youngest son is a bit of a snob, privileged. He's a tattletale on his brothers. The brothers are increasingly hating him. Like, it doesn't take a genius or a psychologist to realize that there's literally a ring getting set up right now. And there's clearly a fight that's brewing and it's on its way. Like, this would be a family that would have a reality TV show if they were around today. But this was their dynamic and this was their story. And nobody's backing down from the chaos that leads to who they are as a family. And so, so what happens is there, at one point, uh, Joseph's father comes to him. The brothers are all out working in the field, family business. They're doing their thing. Dad comes to him and says, hey, Joseph, I need you to go check on your brothers. But dad never sends him to go check because he wants him to help. He sends him to go check to bring back the report, much like he did early on. So Joseph goes out, he goes to find his brothers, he eventually finds them, but they're well aware at this point in relationship with Joseph, when he comes walking onto the scene, he's not here to help, he's got his fancy little coat on, so he's here to tattle and go back and tell dad, so this is it. Like everything has boiled up to a head at this point in the story, and they snap. And this is what we read happens next. You start over in verse 18. But they saw him from a distance, and before he reached him, they plotted to kill him. Okay, well, it's going to get real now. Which, by the way, all of us have probably got some form of family chaos. If you have a family, there's a little bit of family chaos probably for most of us. There might even be some of you, you're like, I don't even want to go to Thanksgiving. I get it. But if your siblings have never tried to murder you, it can get better. It just takes some hope. So this is, this is a bad moment. The brothers are like, we're done. What are we going to do? Let's just kill him and be done with the whole thing. Verse 19, here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. So come. Let's kill him, throw him in one of these cisterns, and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then let's see what it comes of his dreams. Verse 21. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood, but throw him into the cistern here in the wilderness. Let's not lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So there's at least one brother that's trying to help. Maybe he doesn't like Joseph, but he's like, listen... He is our brother. So probably murdering him is going a little bit too far, but the rest of them aren't going to have it. They're going to throw him in this well anyways. They're going to deal with him. So here's what ends up happening. Verse 23, when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe that he was wearing. They took him, they threw him in the cistern. It was empty and there was no water in it. And as they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. And Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill him and cover up his blood? So let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our flesh and blood, and his brothers agreed. And this becomes the moment in the life of a 17-year-old kid that changes the entire future and his whole trajectory. This is the moment in the life of a 17-year-old kid where everything pivots into a different life than he would have ever expected, opening up moment after moment after moment after moment of vicious hit that comes into his life. There's an author, Max Licato, he writes a book with the title, You Will Get Through This, and he, in one place, kind of sums up Joseph's life. 
because maybe you know Joseph's story, maybe you don't. To those of us that need the refresher or those of us that don't, he's gonna be here for a little bit. And matter of fact, next week, we're gonna even camp in the pit with him for the whole morning. But that's not where he ultimately stays. And this is what Max Accato says. Joseph's story did get worse before it got better. Abandonment led to enslavement, then entrapment, and finally imprisonment. He was sucker punched, sold out, mistreated. People made promises only to break them, offered gifts only to take them back. If hurt was a swampland, then Joseph was sentenced to a life of hard labor in the Everglades. And yet he never gave up. Bitterness never staked its claim. Anger never metastasized into hatred. And his heart never hardened. His resolve never vanished. He not only survived, he thrived. He ascended like a helium balloon. Eventually, an Egyptian official promoted him to chief servant. The prisoner warden placed him over the inmates. And even Pharaoh, the highest ruler on the planet at the time, shoulder-tapped Joseph to serve as his prime minister. By the end of his life, Joseph was the second most powerful man to his generation. It is not hyperbole to state that he literally saved the entire world from starvation. So how do you think that looks on a resume? Joseph ends up in this moment in a pit where his brothers throw him there. But that's not where he ultimately goes. God does eventually take this pain and turn it into his platform. But in the present moment that we find Joseph, I think there's a few things to learn from where he's at that hopefully we could make better decisions than he's made up to this point in his life. Because here's the reality. When life begins to hit us, here's what's natural for almost all of us. Me, you, I would bet most of us do this without even thinking about it, is we start looking for who to blame. My wife, she's to blame. My husband, he's to blame. My kids, my boss, my friend, they, her, him, as we start doing this and pointing fingers everywhere. And if you think about Joseph, he could have easily done this. I mean, he could have pointed to his brothers. I mean, they physically grab him and throw him in an empty well and then concoct this whole story that they eventually go back to dad with. They kill an animal, rub its blood all over the coat, tear it up, take it back and go, well, he got eaten. I mean, they, you could easily just get mad at them and go, the reason I've sold into slavery is because of them. I mean, they threw him in a pit. He could have easily blamed them. He could have blamed dad. He could have said, my dad put this target on my back. He's the one that elevated me above everybody else. He's the one that made me special. He's the one that loved me more than he loved them. He could get mad at his dad for never having that like, important dad moment of getting in his face and saying, Joseph, I love you, but you're a moron. Like, What are you doing right now? He could be mad at dad and say, it's my dad's fault. He never told me what I needed to see. He never confronted me. Or he could be mad at God. I mean, he could. He could blame God and say, you know, God gave me these dreams. If he didn't want me to share them with people, then why did he give them to me? Why did he give me these pictures of my future? Or he could even get mad and say, God could have intervened, right? He could have stepped in front of that bullet supernaturally at the last moment. He could have put his hand in there and said, no harm will come of him. But he didn't. And he let me be thrown in the pit by my brothers. He could have blamed a whole lot of other people. But the reality is there's one common thread that runs underneath all of that. While all of that may have played to a certain degree factors in where he finds himself in this pit, there's one common thread underneath all of it that if it would have been different, he wouldn't be here. And it's own self-absorbed pride. It's his own self-absorbed pride. Sometimes when life starts to hit us, first thing we do, right? Who's, who's to blame? Who hit me? You did it. It's her fault. It's his fault. They, they misunderstood me. And the reality is sometimes the fist in our face is our own and not somebody else's. And, and I think one of the most important things that we can learn to do when life starts to swing at us is pause. And before we start blaming everybody else is go, what responsibility do I bear for the situation that I'm in? Because all of us have seen plenty of people that do this, and all of us have probably been guilty of it. I have, plenty of times, of just pointing the finger elsewhere. Maybe even recently you've seen it. it it's the high school student that fails a class and blames the teacher, and yet fails to take responsibility for the fact that they didn't do the work they were supposed to do or the extra credit that would have gotten them over the slump. Or it's the, it's the employee that blames management for the situation and the conflict at work. It's their fault, they're mistreating me, they don't understand me, but fails to see that their behavior has created the scenario that management has had to step into. It's the husband 
who's on the brink of divorce and blames his wife and says, you're just not giving me a chance and fails to understand the countless years of him being asked to put down the bottle and stop drinking has led to her saying, I just can't do it anymore. And we could go on and on and on. There's so many examples, but here's the bottom line. Sometimes when we find ourselves in the bottom of a pit, before we start going, who threw me in it, we need to realize that there are times in life where we dug that hole ourselves. It's even a verse in the book of Psalms, chapter 7, verse 15, that says exactly that. This is what the author David once wrote. Whoever digs a hole and scoops it out falls into the pit that they have made. I mean, how many times have we had a moment in our own lives where we find ourselves in what would feel very much like where Joseph is at right now, in the bottom of a pit that we don't know how to get out of? And everything is just dried up on us. And our natural tendency is to want to blame somebody else. And the reality is, we dug that hole. Were there other factors at play? Were there brothers that pushed you in? Was there a dad that maybe elevated? Are there other things that you could point to? Probably. But if you're honest, are there moments that you've had in your own life where the reality is all of that came into play because you dug the hole first? A couple years ago at the church I was at, I remember this one Sunday, a woman came up to me and she said, I don't think I'm going to ever come back again. Okay, how come? And she says, well, I go to church to feel really good, and today I just don't feel very good. So I don't think I'm coming back again. And it led to a great talk, and, and thankfully she actually did. She came back week after week, became one of our most involved volunteers. It was amazing. But sometimes I think we all have that tendency, is to want to come to church on a Sunday morning and, and feel good. And I don't think that that's wrong, but I think that there are times, and I think today is one maybe of those moments for some of us, there are times where God goes, I do want to take you to an incredible place of love, life, and joy, but to get you there and out of the hole, we got to deal with what got you into it, and your finger pointing isn't going to, unless you turn it in the right direction, because you dug the hole yourself. It's not a really warm, fuzzy idea, but if it's true, it can be a liberating one. And I think it's one of the greatest things that Joseph neglected in the early part of his life is to take personal ownership for the decisions he had been making that led him into this moment. See, I think one of the things, in addition to the fact that we are decreasing in our ability to withstand what life throws at us that's also happening to us, is we are a culture of people that are also having more and more difficulty taking personal responsibility for our decisions and the consequences of them. Everybody else is to blame for everything. And it's like nobody wants to take responsibility anymore and say, yep, that's, that's my fault. I did that. Fist in the face came from me. Hole, I dug it. Really stinks to be here. Would love to get out. God, could you please help? And could use my brothers and sisters in arms, but I put myself here. Nobody wants to do that anymore. We want to point at everybody else around us, which is why I'm going to give you only two simple points of application for the day. If we're going to be people different than what Joseph was doing up to this point in his life, the number one thing that we have to do is be people that are committed on a regular basis to step up to the scale and look at the numbers of our life with honesty, which is something that none of us want to do. Matter of fact, I, I brought a scale this morning, and I have some help. Are you here? Yeah, come on up. Sam? Sam? Everybody give Sam a, a big round of applause. Come up and help. You guys can be an intimidating group sometimes, so make him feel good. So come on up, Sam. This is going to be very simple and very easy, but you're going to help me make a big point this morning. So Sam, what is this? It's a scale. Matter of fact, I'm going to give you this so we can hear you. Here you go, Sam. So this is a scale. Go ahead and stand on the scale. How much do you weigh? 120. 120? Yes, you do. You could probably throw a good punch. Here, now let me get up. Let me get on there. Tell me what I weigh. A few pounds. 192. 82. Come on, man. <laughs> go ahead, get back up. So one of the most important things about a fight, depending on the weight class, go ahead, stand on there, is that you've got to have the right weight, right? Depending on the weight class you're fighting, you've got to cut weight or you've got to add weight. So that scale becomes both friend and enemy because those numbers are important. I'll tell you one of the other things that's so important about any fight. Go ahead, you just stand right there. So go ahead, stand. Nope, go ahead, right back on the scale. One of the other things that's so important about any fight is being able to be courageous. Do you think you would be courageous in a ring? Like, what did you think of the guy earlier, the fighter um, guy on the screen? He was very, um, like, more fighting. And um, if, you, if you like more, if you're in a situation, you need to fight more and um, be more courageous. 
why isn't he giving the sermon today? That's good, dude. That's very good. So, so if, you, if you were in the ring with him, you think you could take him down? Mm-hmm. No. No, come on, listen, listen. I said, you've got to be courageous. Okay, That's sure. one of the most important things about a fight is you've got to have courage. So you've got to say, I could totally knock out Ken Wolf Mac. Sure, I can. You can say, 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 I could totally knock out Ken Wolf Mac. I could totally knock out him. Now tell him. He could, he could knock like four of us at a time out. So, so this is Ken. I just want to bring Ken up for a minute and give you a chance to meet Ken and give you guys a chance to meet him. And hey, while, while I've got you up here for just a minute, can I, I want to ask you a couple of questions. So I, I know we talked about it a little bit in the video, but you're on the mat, you're in a ring, you just got knocked out. Sam just laid you out on the floor. What's the number one most important word in your head that gets you back up on your feet? The number one thing I say to myself is stay calm. You know, you, you need to stay calm in life in general because if you don't, you start panicking, things get worse, right? So when I'm on the ground and I'm in a bad position, I'm like, okay, I know my skill set, but I need to stay calm to get out. So, so the person that might in the audience right now listening online, somebody that's, that's with us this morning, that would say, I feel like I'm on my back. Like that's me right now. What do you say to them? Don't give up. Um, of course, me, I pray to God every day that uh, whatever situation I'm going through, that he's going to be there with me, you know, and that you never should give up no matter how hard the situation is. You can always get back up. Awesome. Cool. Would you guys just thank Sam for being up here and being a part of this morning and thank my friend Ken for being here today. Awesome. Here, I'll take those from you guys. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Whether it's a, a morning weigh-in or a pre-fight weigh-in, here's the reality. None of us like to see the numbers when they aren't what we want to be true about ourselves. And that's true in life. None of us like to have a moment where we have to see something about ourselves that we don't want to be true about ourselves. But that's why personal responsibility is so important. And the fact that it is decreasing in our culture is so lethal right now. Because it's when we lack the personal responsibility that suddenly it's, you're a jerk, I misunderstood. It's everybody else's fault and not my fault. In the Psalms, the author, David, he has this kind of step up to the scale moment that he gives to us. Like, how do we do that, though? Like, what does that look like with God? And this is what David once said in the book of Psalms. If we're going to step up to the scale, he says this. Verse 22, I'm going to start in in the text. He says, I have nothing but hatred for them, and I count them as my enemies. So David, if you know his story, he has a whole bunch of people that have constantly been after him, have done him harm, have been unjust to him. He has enemies. He has people that it would be very easy to point to and go, they're the problem. They're who've hurt me. They're what's created my chaos. But watch the pivot he makes. Instead of saying, God, so go deal with them, fix them, stop them. Watch what he does. Search me. Me, not them, fix them, stop them, search them. He says, God, search me in my heart. And he goes on and he says, know my heart, test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. One of the most important things for us to do in a moment that life is swinging on us. Frankly, I think regularly, daily, but especially in the moments that it feels like we're getting hit by life, is to have a moment like this where we just get honest before God. There has to be things I don't see about myself. So search me and know me and lead me. That's the moment of stepping on the scale, of being honest enough to say, Maybe part of the hole has been dug by my own hands. God, show me if that's true. But the last thing that helps us to embrace that and make that a reality in our lives is knowing who to listen to that's in our corner trying to help us see what we need to see. That's the last thing I want to give you this morning is listen to the voices in your corner. Much like with a fight and like in real life, there are people in your corner. And maybe you feel like you don't have a lot of them, but there's somebody there that God has placed in your life to be that voice to push you towards who he's made you to be. The problem is those voices sometimes can be really encouraging and sometimes they can be really painful. And they can be really painful because they are an attempt to help you see that the numbers on the scale aren't what you want them to be. But here's how we're gonna move towards who Jesus wants you to be. Years ago, I'll never forget this experience of sitting at a table with a group of five of us, four of my best friends at the time. 
and one of them was making all kinds of destructive decisions in his life, his marriage, just wreaking havoc. And so the four of us decided to sit down with him at dinner and challenge him to be those voices in his corner. And it ended bad. Like it got, he got up and lots of words and horrible and shouting and stormed out literally last time I ever saw him. And we had been friends for years. And it was so bizarre that, that all of us kind of sat there dumbfounded, the four of us afterwards, like, what just happened? And it was a moment where we really realized something that I've carried to this moment with me. Nobody lies to us like we do. Which means it's so important that before you're in a moment where you don't know who to listen to, that you decide who you will. We all sat at that table that day and decided that if anyone in that group ever came to us, and particularly the group came to us and said, hey, uh, we need to show you some things you don't want to see, we would listen to that group. Like, we would trust them enough to listen to them, even if what they said was horribly painful to have to face. Because we can't fix what we won't face. So who are the friends in your corner that will be those people that you'll listen to? Maybe there's even someone right now and you haven't been listening to them because frankly, you don't like what they say. You don't like the fact that they're telling you there's a number on the scale that you wish wasn't there. If they're telling you that because they love you and they're trying to push you towards the God who loves you, who made you, who has plans for you, listen to the voices in your corner. The beauty of today is, and really this whole series, is that God's promises, even if it's your own fist in your face, what was intended for harm, he will use for good. Trust him. Lean into him. Look honestly at the scale and listen to the voices in your corner. And your pain, he'll eventually turn into your platform. Father, I pray that you would speak deeply into our hearts in the days to come about truths that are yours. I pray that we would have the courage to see what maybe even right now we would rather ignore. And I pray that we would have ears to hear from what scripture says are the friends who stick closer than a brother, who even wound us at times, but because they love us. Give us confidence, God, that all things thrown at us to hurt us, you and your sovereignty can transform to use to the good of not only our, our lives, but those around us as well. In Jesus' name, amen.
when you sing. I'm not enough. Come on. Unless you come, will you? That's all I want. Cause all I excited about with next week is we're actually going to spend the entire morning in the pit with Joseph. It's one of the briefest parts of his story. He's in the pit and then he's out of the pit and you can quickly move on to other aspects of his story. But I just think there have been too many moments in my life where while I believe that God can turn pain into platform, there have been too many moments where I don't know what to do when I'm actually in the pit. Like, okay, but I don't feel like there's a platform right now. I just feel like dry well and I'm at the bottom of it. What do I believe about you? What do I do? What do I think? And so we're actually going to camp for the day with him in that pit and explore what do we do when we're in a dry season? What do we do when there's no platform yet? It's just pain. What do we conclude about God? What do we conclude about others? And what do we do while we're sitting there? So it's going to be awesome. I also want to let you know this next week, uh, Wednesday is midweek for us, uh, 7 o'clock here in the building. So make sure to join us or online with us. I think it's going to be an incredible midweek. It will be my first one with you, so I'm super excited about that. Hopefully you'll come back for that. Um, also, this morning, as you're on your way out, we have a prayer team here. They're in the back. You can kind of see the door open and the light coming out from back there. We would love to just serve you if we can before you leave. If you need to process through something this morning or maybe something that didn't even have anything to do with today, but it's just churning and you need somebody to talk with or somebody to just pray over you, that's what they're here to do. Please let us do that. Otherwise, we're so thankful that you were here with us this morning. We hope this was good for you and your heart, that God spoke to you, and that you'll take what he said throughout this week and let him grow it in you as well. So you are loved. Have a great Sunday. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to the Kensington Church Podcast. If you've enjoyed this recording, check back weekly for new content. You can find Kensington on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and of course, at kensingtonchurch.org.